0: All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter ten. We're gonna be looking at verses twenty three through twenty-seven this evening. That's Mark ten, twenty-three through twenty-seven, and we're continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And tonight we're looking at Jesus' warning to the rich and his declaration of God's ability to do the impossible. You'll remember that last week we we looked at Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. And you'll remember that the young man had asked Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He asked Jesus what good deed he needed to do in order to earn salvation. We saw in our text last week how the rich young ruler was a legalist to the core. He believed, like most Jews of his day, that salvation... That right standing with God, entrance into God's kingdom, eternal life, all of that came to a person by their obedience to God. The young man believed that salvation was by works of the law, that is, by law keeping and good works. And we saw that the young man was self-righteous. He really thought that he had kept the law perfectly, right? He, 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 he was really wrong, but he sincerely thought that since he had kept the law outwardly, that must mean that he had truly kept it. And our Lord then went on to expose the man as an idolater. Right? That is someone who breaks the first commandment. Jesus called him to sell all his possessions, give the money to the poor, and come follow him. But sadly, the rich young ruler loved his stuff more than God. He loved his gold more than God. And so he was exposed as an idolater of money and possessions but instead of repenting and coming to Christ he went away sad and unsaved the rich young ruler refused to sell all to lay down his idol of money and possessions and follow Jesus in faith and our text this evening picks up directly after that interaction and in our passage Jesus begins to address his disciples And teach them some important things in light of the rich young ruler and his refusal of Jesus. And in our Lord's talk with his disciples, he warns them about the danger of wealth. The danger of wealth, the impossibility of man to save himself, and the ability of God by his grace to do what man cannot. So that's where we're going this evening. We're going to see from this text the danger of wealth, the impossibility of man to save himself, and God's ability to do what man cannot. So with that said, now if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 27. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God, we ask you now to teach us your people. By your word and spirit, do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. We're naturally hard-hearted and stubborn, slow to hear, and even slower to truly listen and take to heart what you say. So we ask that you, by your grace, would open our hearts and ears and minds so that we would understand, believe, obey, and gladly receive your word. Help us. Sanctify us by your word. Teach us. Make us like our Lord Jesus. We ask for this in his name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right into this text. After the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, Mark records for us, we'll read verse 23 again. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler walks away and Jesus looks around at his disciples with intention. He looks at them. One commentator said that it's as if Jesus is taking a survey of the situation. He's looking to see what his disciples think about what's happened. He's looking at each one of them with a strong gaze so as to get their attention. Again, he's looking at each of them. And what he's getting ready to say is searching for all of them, really for all disciples, not just them but us today both them and us. So he looks around at them, and he gets their attention. He wants us to pay attention to his words here. He's about to say some really sobering things. And those words are, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is an incredibly strong statement. Our Lord straight up affirms that it will be difficult for the wealthy, it will be difficult for the rich, it will be difficult for those with many possessions to enter the kingdom of God. And this difficulty, as we'll see in verse 25, this difficulty is not meant to be understood as something that's just kind of hard, but with enough effort from the rich is made possible. No. The idea here is that of insane levels of difficulty. That it is impossibly difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Our Lord asserts this as a fact, and we ought to accept it as one. It will be impossibly difficult for the wealthy to go to heaven. It will be difficult for the wealthy to find salvation. Now, before we go any further, I think it's good to clarify some things, right? And just real quick, remember, we believe in sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone, but we also believe in tota scriptura, so the totality of scripture we believe in scripture alone as our rule and faith and practice and we take all of scripture right so whenever you're interpreting one text you have to bear in mind the whole rest of the biblical account right so you don't just isolate one passage here so with that said we need to clarify some things Jesus does not make this statement because riches and wealth are intrinsically evil because they're not money is not evil Wealth can be used for good or for evil, but it is not intrinsically evil. The Apostle Paul is often misquoted in our day. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he's often misquoted as saying money is the root of all evil. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. What he did say, and I quote, right, because it's always good to quote from the Bible when you're preaching. He did say, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving... That some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It is the love of money. It is the craving of money. The inordinate desire for money that leads to all manner of sin. But it's not money. It's not money itself. So our Lord is not condemning money or possessions as intrinsically evil. He's not a communist. Right, Write that down. Jesus is not a commie. It's very good. You're going to need to remember that in the coming years in this country. He's not a communist. So he's not saying that money and possessions are evil. Likewise, our Lord is not saying that rich people are never saved. He's not saying that either. Jesus is not saying that rich people are damned to hell simply because they're rich. That's not his point. We'll get to that later about what his point is in saying all of this. But let it be sufficient for now to affirm that indeed there have been and are currently rich people who are legitimate believers. Rich people have went to heaven. So Jesus is not saying that wealth disqualifies from salvation all who possess it. That's not his point. And if you think, well, uh, how? Just consider briefly Abraham, Job, Joseph, King David, King Solomon, King, Josiah, and others in the Old Testament. Those dudes were rich. Those guys were rich, and they were believers. not saying they were perfect, but they were legitimate believers. Likewise, in the New Testament, consider for a moment Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who gave his tomb to Jesus to be buried in. He was rich, and he was a disciple. That's what Matthew 27 tells us. And you remember Lydia from the book of Acts? She was a dealer of purple goods. That's high expensive stuff she was selling right she was a wealthy woman she was actually so wealthy that the church met in her house and she housed the apostle Paul for a little while right so there have been and are wealthy believers. Jesus is not saying that all rich people are damned because they are rich. so what is Jesus doing then? right what is he saying in this verse? Well we must remember the context right Again these verses don't just drop out of the sky. Remember the context. The rich young ruler has just walked away sad and unsaved because he loved his money more than God. The rich young ruler rejected Christ and the call to discipleship because he wanted his money and his stuff more than eternal life. And so Jesus now makes a strong and generally true general statement about how hard it is for rich people to be saved. He's speaking of the impossibility, that it is impossibly difficult for those who depend upon their riches, their status, their power, their possessions, how impossibly hard it is for them to be saved. He's speaking of the deceitfulness of riches, as he talked about in Mark 4, the parable of the sower, the deceitfulness of riches and how so many of the rich are idolaters of their wealth. So then, why is it so difficult for the rich to be saved? It's a question I had as I read this. Like, Okay, Jesus, I believe you, but why? Why is that the case? Allow me to set before you a handful of reasons I think the Lord may have had in mind, and these are not original to me. I stole a lot of these from commentators, but these are helpful. Why is it so difficult for the rich to be saved? First, the wealthy tend to be proud and self-reliant. They tend that way. Many who are wealthy have achieved their financial status through much hard work. And contrary to what modern leftists will tell you, that everyone who's rich is just lazy and evil. No, actually, many of the people who are wealthy have achieved their financial status because they're hard workers. They've made good decisions. They've planned well. They've saved their money. They've denied themselves instant gratification. And they've thought long term. They became wealthy that way. Many who are wealthy have become wealthy through achieving great things. Great things in business, academics, intellectual enterprises, science, medicine, a sport, politics, it, 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 and the list goes on. Many, what my point is, is many who are wealthy are great achievers in their field, whatever that field may be. And because they've accomplished so much, and because they've been so intelligent and planned so well, they become proud. They become proud. And in their pride, they refuse to admit a couple of things. One, that all they have has been given to them from God ultimately. And two, that they have any need for anyone else, namely Jesus Christ. They've earned all that they've ever gotten through hard work, and so they are often loath to humble themselves, admit that they cannot do something save themselves and come to Christ like a child and receive the kingdom with childlike faith. Pride is a great hindrance to entering the kingdom. Proud people will not inherit the kingdom of God and often the rich are full of pride. Second, the wealthy, there are seven things I have for you. Second, the wealthy tend to be preoccupied with accumulating more wealth. When you have more, generally you want more. Isn't that true? When you have more, you want more. Right You used to want that raise, and then you got that raise, and it was a couple thousand a year and now you did ah, like, yeah, that's cool, but like ah, I really want to make as much as like that other dude that I work with right and it's just been like two months since you've gotten your raise and you're already like not content, right, or you just got a car, and then six months later you're driving down the road and you're like, that is a nice car as if you've forgotten that you just got a new car. Everyone's guilty of doing this because when you have have much generally you want more greed is a horrible vice discontentment is a horrible vice and the more money a person has the more greed tends to take over the heart to give you an example a steel tycoon in the 1800s was once asked you're a billionaire what else do you want and his answer was just a little more what do you want just a little more The rich are often consumed with gaining even greater wealth. The rich want more, bigger, and better. And in their preoccupation with getting more, they don't give any thought to the things of God often. They're so busy trying to get more that they don't think about eternal realities. Since money has become their priority, money has become their God. Money has become the thing that they think about more than anything else. And even if they wouldn't say money is their God, money has functionally become their God. And so there's no thought given to anything else but more and how to get it. Third, the wealthy also tend to be very busy managing their empires, whether great or small, whether it's the empire of a small convenience store, or the empire of Walmart, or the empire of the British Empire. The wealthy tend to be very busy managing their empires. They're often, the wealthy are often quite entrepreneurial and don't give themselves to much quiet time. At least, let's be fair, at least the first generation of wealth tends to be like this. Right? Very industrious people. And since they refuse to stop working long enough to actually think about the bigger picture of life, death, sin, judgment, heaven, hell, and salvation, they miss it all, and they perish. The hard work of the wealthy becomes a snare to them, and they idolize their empire, and so miss the kingdom. Fourth, those who were born into wealth are a bit less industrious than their forefathers usually, right? Like at least from what I've read, statistically speaking, uh, the third generation of wealth tends to be the ones that begin to ruin it because they're not as industrious as their forefathers. And me and my sister are the third generation in our family of owning the store. So just write that down. Uh, <laughs> that's usually how it goes. Those who are born into wealth are a bit less industrious than their forefathers, usually. And because of that, listen. Because of that, many people who are born wealthy give themselves to entertainment, don't they? I mean, think about it like the stereotypical rich brat. They have enough disposable income to afford to keep themselves entertained as much as they like. And that entertainment becomes consuming. That entertainment becomes the centerpiece of their life, and it ultimately distracts them from contemplating eternal realities and the state of their souls. The rich often entertain themselves all the way to hell. Fifth, Because of their wealth, the rich often have life here on earth much easier than others. Generally speaking, the lives of the rich are lavish and easy and full of temporary earthly pleasure. And because of a lack of suffering and hardship, the rich enjoy their lives on earth and don't see any real need to look for a better world in the life to come. And because of their ease, they content themselves with this world to speak like a Puritan for a moment, they become addicted to this world and they refuse the call to pursue eternal life through following Jesus Christ in faith. Sixth, some wealthy people take their financial growth as an implicit sign of God's blessing and love and favor. I feel like I've met some people like this. And so they think that because they're rich, they must be acceptable in God's sight or he wouldn't have given them everything that they have. They recognize that God is the ultimate source behind everything that they have, and he wouldn't give me this much unless I was already okay with him. So they become self-righteous, and they think that they have no need for Christ and his gospel. Seventh and finally, the wealthy tend to reject the offer of the kingdom because they know that following Jesus would cost them. They could lose their wealth for Christ's sake. They may lose business if word gets out that they're Christians, especially in our day, and especially in the first century. They could lose business if it gets out that they're with Christ. They may lose influence and contacts if they're associated with God's people. If they make their money in a sinful way, they would have to find a new way to make money, and they don't want that kind of a hardship. They know that they may become despised and lose it all for Christ's sake, and so they are unwilling to let it go for the sake of knowing God through his Son. Bottom line, for one reason or another, most of which have to do with pride, or being distracted from what matters most, eternal realities. The wealthy tend to not admit their need for salvation, or they count the cost and love their money more than God. Now at this point, I bet some of us are thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not rich. Slow your roll. Hold up for a second. Our Lord spoke of the rich in what context? First century Palestine. That's the kind of rich that he was talking about. First century Palestine. And compared to many of us, maybe not all of us, but compared to many of us, the rich back then were living in poverty. Most of us lived the same as or better than kings did back then. You wear jewelry? You know how rich you had to be in the first century to afford a piece of gold that you didn't need to spend? You have a vehicle? You have a home. Most of our homes are like palaces. Maybe not most, but many of our homes are like palaces for the first century. We're, we're wealthy. So Jesus' words here about the rich are very much for us. They're, they're for us to hear and heed. And so I challenge you and, and me. Right? I had six days to get beat with this, so now I'm giving it to you. I challenge you to ask yourself a very serious question. Do I value anything more than knowing Christ? Do I cherish my things? My my job, my money, my status, my home, my entertainment? God help us to see that one, and I'm not being glib when I say that. Do I cherish my entertainment more than knowing Christ? Do Do I cherish my achievements? Do I cherish anything more than God? We need to ask ourselves, do do I value anything? Do I focus on anything? Do I commit myself with anything? Am I consumed with anything more than following Christ? Because if we do, if the answer is yes, then we're in danger of not entering the kingdom. And we need to repent. Our riches, our wealth, our stuff poses a real threat to salvation. Idolatry is subtle and we need to seriously think about that. But again, I say that in the grand scheme of things, everyone in this building is rich. And if you want to challenge that, I have an example for you. I once sponsored a boy in Zambia, it's a country in Africa. And he ate and went to to school off of the $30 a month that I sent him. That was food and like books and paper, His education, a dollar a day. A dollar a day. And he lived in a 20 foot by 20 foot concrete shelter with his sibling and parents. His mom and dad lived in one corner. He lived in another corner. His sibling lived in the other corner. And their stove was in the final corner. We're rich. We're rich. This text is for us. And so we need to guard ourselves against the deceitfulness of riches. Wealth is a great temptation to make us forget about God. There's a proverb, I should have put this in my notes, but I just not remembered it. There's a proverb that says, and I'm paraphrasing Lord, give me, don't give me too little, lest I steal and sin against you. And don't give me too much, lest I become proud and say, Who is the Lord? Do we not tend to do that with our wealth? Who is God? I have so much, I feel like I don't need him sometimes. Wealth is a great temptation to make us forget about God, forget about the world to come, and forget about what really matters. Wealth can deceive you into neglecting the things of God. Wealth can trick you into valuing it above the gospel itself, and we are not immune. We're not immune. Am I denying the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints here? No, I'm not. This is a warning that the elect of God are to listen to and heed. That we might be on guard against the deceitfulness of riches. Remember that. And pray for the Lord to expose your idolatry if it's there. And grant you repentance. But back to our text. At this word about the difficulty of the rich entering the kingdom of God, the disciples were shocked. Verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. The fact that it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God was absolutely news to them. Right, but why? Why was this so shocking to the disciples? Well, in order to understand it, I think we need to know some historical background here. Uh, You see, in the pharisaical form of Judaism, that was pretty much the norm in their day, uh, they they thought about wealth in a way that Jesus clearly did not. It was a common belief that wealthy people were the special objects of God's blessing and favor. It was thought amongst the Jews of that day that there was almost a one-to-one correlation between spiritual righteousness and material wealth. So when you saw a rich Jew, the thought was that you could pretty much bet that they were going to heaven, right? They were certainly going to be received by God. Look at how he has blessed them. They must be righteous, right? And and they got this idea from some passages in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are indeed some texts that talk about God blessing the righteous with material blessings, especially Deuteronomy 28, right? God basically tells the Jews, if you're obedient, I will bless the land and you'll have material abundance, Right, that that is there, that was part of the old covenant blessings. Again, those are material blessings, not spiritual blessings. But again, that's there. But to take such a simplistic view that earthly wealth was because of spiritual righteousness, and that earthly wealth there was a one-to-one between whether or not God was going to accept you, is to ignore tons of other old pa- old testament passages that speak of the godless rich, like Psalm seventy-three. Right, that's the one. Read that in your free time. It talks about the godless rich and how they oppress the righteous. So what, what the Pharisees essentially had done is they flattened out the words of the Old Testament and twisted them so as to mean that the wealthy must be wealthy because they're so good. This would preach on TBN, wouldn't it? Right. This is a first century prosperity gospel. Creflo Dollar took notes in these classes, right? This is prosperity stuff. They flattened out the words and twisted them so as to mean the wealthy must be wealthy because they're so good. More than that, with the legalistic form of Judaism that was common in that day, the Jews thought that the rich had an upper hand in good works. This actually made sense to me. I thought this is pretty consistent. Think about it for a moment. The Jews thought that you would be saved by your good works. Right? Your obedience to the law and your good deeds. And the rich were able to give to the poor. The rich could give more money than anyone else. And giving to the poor is an incredibly good thing to do that we are commanded to do all over scripture. One rabbi even said that you could buy your way into eternal life by giving alms to the poor. It's almost like an indulgence. So the rich could give and give because they had money. They could give and give. And in doing so, they could merit Their right standing with God. More than that, because they had money, the rich could also offer all kinds of sacrifices at the temple. More sacrifices than your average Jew. And since they're offering all kinds of sacrifices with their money, they're meriting more righteousness with God. Of course, that's not true, but that was a dominant thought in their day. So then you can see why the disciples were shocked by Jesus' words. They thought that if anyone was going to be saved, it was going to be the rich. After all, their wealth was a sign of their righteousness and God's blessing. They were able to do more good deeds than anyone else, and they could offer up more sacrifices than anyone else. So it blew their minds that Jesus said that the rich would have an impossibly hard time entering the kingdom. blew their minds. But notice, and I love this about Jesus, he doubles down on his statement, doesn't he, in verse 24. And really, he makes it even more strict. They're amazed, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He calls them children here. Jesus is being affectionate with them. He knows he's upending their entire understanding of how things are, but he's not doing it out of meanness. He's doing it because he loves them and he wants them to see things rightly. But notice in our text that he says that it is difficult in general to enter the kingdom of God. He makes no mention of the rich here in verse 24. He's going to in verse 25, but he makes no mention of the rich. For both the rich and the poor, for every single person, it is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Now listen, though the main thrust of the teaching in this text is about how hard it is for the rich to be saved, Jesus makes the point here that it is exceedingly difficult for anyone to be saved why is that why is entering the kingdom so difficult because to enter the kingdom of God you must be humbled you must come to terms with your sin and your unworthiness you must admit that you are a sinner with nothing to offer God as the Lord was exposing this to the rich young ruler and you must change your allegiance from self to God Let me say that again. You must change your allegiance from yourself to God if you're going to enter the kingdom. If you're going to enter the kingdom, you must lay your life at the feet of Christ and say, Lord, I won't do it perfectly, but from this day forward, my life's goal is to surrender all to you in faith. I want you, Jesus, more than I want anything else in this world. To enter the kingdom of God, you must come to the end of yourself. And listen, if you've not come to the end of you, then you cannot come to Christ. Remember the words of our Lord in Mark 8? If anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, rich, poor, male, female, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And this is a hard thing to do. It's hard for anybody to deny yourself, take up your cross, that is be ready to die. Your life is over and you're going to follow Jesus. This is impossible for man to do on his own. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom. But then Jesus gets back to speaking of the rich in verse 25. He says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus here explains how difficult it is. It's difficult. How difficult? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. He narrows it down now to an absolute impossibility. And that's the point it is impossible. It is impossible. And this is actually Jesus' version of an ancient saying that was common in his day in other nations. I believe it was the Arabs uh, that, that the Jews eventually picked it up from them that would say, it's easier for an elephant to pass through the eye of a needle than for X to happen. It's easier for an elephant to pass through the eye of a needle than for this to happen. It was basically the equivalent of our modern saying, there isn't a snowball's chance in hell of that happening. Is the same equivalent, basically. Jesus took the largest land animal in Israel. He contextualized it instead of an elephant, a camel, and the smallest hole in the average house, a needle's eye, and said, it's easier to make that happen than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. It is impossible. And listen to me. I know the other interpretations of this. You guys have heard of, like, the needle gate and, like, the camel just needs to get down on its knees and unload all of its load, and it can get through the needle gate in Jerusalem. There is no historical basis for that whatsoever. That was an interpretation that came around after the year 1000. And there is no archaeology, no history whatsoever to suggest that that was ever a thing. Furthermore, what kind of an idiot would go through the needle gate with a camel instead of going to one of the bigger gates? Like, give me a break. Right? No offense. No offense if I just defended someone's former pastor. Right? But that's just not... Any interpretation that tries to undermine the force of Jesus' words here is either ahistorical or just laughably bad. All other attempts to understand Jesus' words here actually diminish his point. He's very clearly saying that it is impossible for the rich, those like the rich young ruler, those who love their money, those who focus on wealth, those who trust in riches, it is absolutely impossible for them to be saved. And considering what he says in verse 24, it is impossible for anyone in and of themselves to be saved. It is more difficult for anyone to be saved than it is to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And the disciples understood his point, didn't they? Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? This exceedingly astonished means like to to receive a strike on the head. This blew their minds. They can't believe what he's saying. The rich, for all that they can do, for all the good works they can do, for all the alleged sign of God's blessing, for all the sacrifices they can afford to offer, it is impossible for them to be saved. And then the, the disciples' mind, if the rich can't be saved, then who in the world can if it is humanly impossible for the rich to be saved, then the poor have no chance at all. If the rich can't buy salvation, then the poor can't. If the rich can't earn salvation, then the poor can't. If the rich have nothing to give God, then the poor certainly have even less to give. So then, who can be saved? And by saved here, I believe that they meant they're remembering what Jesus had spoken of at the end of chapter 9. Gehenna hell. This place of fire where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. The wrath of God against sin and sinners is what we need saved from. The eternal fires of hell for offending a holy God is what we need saved from. So this is a huge question they're asking. Who can be saved from eternal destruction? Here the disciples are put right where Jesus wants them, I think. They're beginning to see the impossibility of men saving themselves. They're beginning to see the need for God's grace if anyone is going to be saved from hell. They're beginning to see that man cannot earn salvation. And so they begin to cry out to Jesus for an answer. Who then can be saved? If man cannot save himself, then how are people saved? And Jesus provides the answer in our final verse, an answer that is full of hope and full of the sovereign grace of God. Verse 27 Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Our Lord agrees with their implications here. Jesus agrees that with man it is impossible. For anyone to be saved. That's what the disciples were thinking. Jesus agrees with them. The rich and poor alike will perish eternally if left on their own. And I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't say, with man, it is very hard to be saved. It's not what he says. Jesus says that it is an impossibility for man, in and of himself, to be saved. It will not happen. It will not happen. We cannot buy our way into the kingdom. I know I'm laboring my point, but this is the overarching point of the text. We cannot buy our way in. We cannot earn our way in. We cannot work our way in. Human beings cannot do anything to be saved. Why is that? Well, Jesus has been showing us throughout this chapter in his interactions with people, in his interactions with the rich young ruler, in his interactions with the children. Jesus has been showing us that if we are to be saved, that we must lay ourselves down, lay down our idols, forsake all, and come to Christ with childlike faith. And listen to me, we cannot do that to ourselves. We can't. We cannot work that in our own hearts. We can't we lack the ability so many people will tell you that become this is an epidemic in american christianity people will tell you that becoming a christian is merely a decision that's blasphemy becoming a christian is not a mere decision They'll tell you that you just need to walk an aisle, pray the sinner's prayer, sign some certificate, and then you're good to go. You've punched your ticket. It's that simple. It's just a decision that you can muster up in your heart if you're smart enough and not stupidly stubborn. But that's not true. That's not true. Jesus says that we must forsake our whole lives if we're to follow him. And it is only by following him in faith that we are saved. To enter the kingdom of God, there must be a change of allegiances in your life. There has to be an entire change of heart. There has to be a change from idolatry. To the love of the true and living God. There has to be a change of priorities that begin in your heart. There has to be true repentance. That is a true, from the heart, in faith, change of mind and agreement with God about your sin. With an earnest endeavoring to forsake it. There has to be true faith in Jesus. Where you forsake all other hopes and trust only in Him to save you. And listen, no man or woman or child, rich or poor, can make that happen to himself. No one can do that. No man can change his own heart. We're too sinful. And listen, I know our culture, I'm sure we've all imbibed some of it, because I felt it as I was writing this. What do you mean people can't change, right? People can change. Like we, we get that from our culture all the time. And yes, in lesser ways, people can change. But listen to what the Word of God has to say on whether or not men can change their hearts. Jeremiah 13, 23 God, speaking through the apostle Jeremiah, says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard change his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. What's he saying there? Let me give you the the redneck version of it. Can a black person change the color of their skin? I see you grinning down there, OJ. OJ. Can OJ change the color of his skin? No. Can your dog change the pattern of his fur? No. Then also, you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. A sinner can no more change his own heart than a black person can choose to not be black or a leopard can choose to take its spots off. It is impossible for a sinner to change his own heart. Not only is it impossible, but we don't want to do it. Paul says, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says, For the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not please him. Indeed, it cannot. We don't want to change. Listen, we can't even change our own taste buds. How are you going to change your heart? How are you going to change your loves? You can't. We're dead in our sins and trespasses in our natural state, and we love our sin. We love our idols. We don't want to lay down our lives at the feet of Christ. We cannot change our allegiances. We cannot change our loves. We cannot work that in ourselves. But God can. Isn't that a breath of relief? God can. And God does. This is how God always saves his people. He works in them by grace to change their hearts. God acts upon the sinner to make them able and willing to repent and believe. God gives the new birth or the birth from above and changes the heart of the sinner. He gives us new loves. He gives us the ability and desire to lay our lives down at the feet of Christ He, by his grace, causes us to come to the end of ourselves, take up our cross, and in faith go after Christ. God can take a rich man and make him love Christ more than his wealth. God can remove idols from our hearts. God can change our allegiances. God can show us our spiritual poverty. God can save us. Because God can do the impossible. That's the point here. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. So then sinners actually can be saved. Because God is gracious. Sinners can be saved. Because God can override unbelief. Because God can override sin. Sinners can be saved because God can do it. Because God can do anything. And he has been pleased to save sinners time and time again because he's gracious and kind. Allow me now to walk briefly through one of the most beloved texts of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I going to read it and make some comments as I go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's writing this to Christians. In other words, to to contextualize this for Mark chapter 10, And you were the rich young ruler. Loving your wealth more than God, loving your idols, loving your stuff, not wanting to lay your life down at the feet of Christ. And you were dead in your sins. And with man, it is impossible for you to, for it was impossible for you to save yourself because you were dead. And dead people don't do anything. Dead people rot. Dead people don't change their hearts. Dead people don't do anything And in your idolatry and sin and unbelief and inability to do anything spiritually good. In your inability to change your heart to go after Christ. You were under the wrath of God like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What's he say? You were dead. You were dead. Unable to save yourself. Unable to do anything. And God made you alive. Christian, this is what happened to you. With man, it is impossible. You were dead. You could change nothing about your allegiances. You could change nothing about your own heart. But God made you alive. Being rich in mercy. Because he loved you. Because he decided sovereignly to show grace to you. He made you alive. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, And raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He did this that you might be an eternal monument to his grace. He changed your heart and made you alive that you might forever be to the praise of His glory. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And hear me, this is the gift of God refers to your salvation that came by grace through faith. The salvation, the grace, and the faith, all of it was a gift from God. You were dead, you couldn't make yourself believe, God gave you the gift of faith. And he did it by grace, not through anything that you did, and he saved you by himself. With man it is impossible, but not with God. And he did this so that you would never be able to boast. Because with you it was impossible, and he did it all. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The one thing I want to say from verse 10, we are his workmanship. Just like a carpenter looks at a house that he has built and said, look what I built, that is the work of my hands. That is my workmanship, Christian. God looks at you and says, I built that. God looks at saved people and says, that's my workmanship. I did that to them. I did that in them. Not them. Because they were dead. And I gave them life. God saved you, Christian. He did the impossible and brought you to life. He gave you a heart transplant, as it were, and saved you. With man, salvation is impossible, but not with God. In closing, then, I want to say two things to you by way of application, and I will be brief. First, in light of the first half of this sermon, I ask you to evaluate yourself. Ask yourself, am I trusting in wealth? Am I distracted? Am I consumed with money and acquiring more? Am I seeking after anything, anything at all, more than I'm seeking after Christ? I hope that's not the case, but ask the Lord to show you your own heart. Pray to Him and ask Him to reveal any idols that you may have. Pray that He would show you what you're living for and grant you repentance if it isn't Him. Pray and think on these things and ask the Lord to help you live only for Him. And second, you think, what kind of application am I supposed to have with I didn't do anything and God did all my salvation for me and I don't have any role to play in that? Here's your application. Be astonished. Be astonished. Be astonished. Marvel at your own salvation. Recognize it as the miracle that it is. God did it. He changed you. You didn't do it. You couldn't do it. It was impossible for you, but God did it. This is an encouragement for us to behold the love and power of God. We are saved because God can do what we can't. And we're saved because God had mercy upon us and chose to save us. So marvel at this. Stand amazed at your salvation. In the words of Stephen Lawson, surely we're not too grown up to marvel and be amazed at the work of God in our hearts. Surely you're not too much of an adult that you can't be amazed at what God has done for you. Every Christian is an eternal monument to God's grace. So be amazed and glory in Him. With man, it is impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this text of Scripture that reminds us of the deceitfulness of riches, the impossibility of us to save ourselves, but your ability to do the impossible, your ability.